Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and there's a number of themes that we touch upon uh, in the various conversations on the podcast, all of which in some way relate to the, the overall theme of wildness. Um, but I think, I think one that perhaps we've, we've spent less time uh, touching on than I'd like is that of culture. Um, and I suppose culture's quite a broad category, so in a sense we have touched on it because whenever we're talking about food, that's a, that's a form of culture. But I guess when I say that, I'm thinking more like kind of arts and, and culture um, because the way in which the uh, fabric used to be woven between people and landscapes and which i think you know inevitably will be always woven when when there's that vital contact that vital sort of living participation and involvement between people and their land and um, everything that goes with it you know soil and climate and geology and of course um other living things and, and ecosystems that vital contact is always going to give rise to um cultural activities um Starting with you know the, the 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 metaphorical life of people, the kind of images and symbols and and how we talk about life being um, embedded and and based on um, our participation in in these living systems, because of course you know the only the only source of metaphors that we have is is what we see and 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 make contact with all day. And I guess that in itself is a theme I have begun to touch upon, uh, but also. Arts, um, in in the sense of you know, you know, music and and uh, dance and stories, has always been um, land based. Where 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 culture is land based, it's kind of an obvious thing to say. But um, I suppose where where I'm kind of going to with it is is the idea that if if we are reconnecting more with other living things and with with landscapes, um, and if we're kind of edging towards um, a sort of new but very ancient way of being um, by talking about all this, this stuff with foraging and the idea of getting back into the wild, then sooner or later we're going to have music and dance and theatre and, and ceremonies and, and feasts and just happenings, cultural happenings, which which uh, have arisen from that contact and therefore um, we'll be expressing much more than just, just um, the cleverness of the human being, but we'll be expressing things about land and other species. So I'm pretty excited for that reason to have Sam Bailey on the podcast uh, this week. And Sam's a friend of mine who um, runs an amazing event in Canterbury called Free Range. There's been such a broad spectrum of different kind of performances that have happened at Free Range over the years, um, from sort of free jazz improvisation to stand-up poetry to um, stuff bordering on kind of stand-up comedy, I guess, and uh, just sort of performance art. I can't really do justice to that full spectrum, but you will be able to explore it because we'll put the link to the Free Range webpage um, on this week's podcast page, and there's an archive there of recordings that you'll be able to dig in and, and, and explore, like the, the um, many, many performances at Free Range. And Sam is also an artist in his own right. You'll be able to see some of the uh, performances that, that he's made at Free Range as part of that archive. But we've also been exploring ideas and practically exploring them around how music and food could come together. We've, Sam and I have done um, one event called Eating Sound in Canterbury, which, which Sam went on to do in London several times. In another venue, it's, it, was, it was an event where we uh, cooked a meal based around edible wild plants and mushrooms. And then Sam and some very gifted improvising uh, musicians created a musical performance that reflected the food that was being eaten. So it was it was incredible, actually. Um, and then we've done a couple of events outside, one, one in the forest and one um, where we moved from uh, quite far out uh, at the low tide stage down at uh, Whitstable in Kent. Uh, and 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 we did this sort of performance where we all walked in as the tide was coming in, um, which was uh, a part improvised performance reflecting the movement of the sea and the uh, seagulls and so on were actually part of the performance. So that was quite exciting. So we're we're exploring this idea of music and performance in um, wild spaces, um, and um, I hope to do more of that sort of thing but it all boils down to the, the the themes around improvisation and 
that as a way of connecting with wildness. And actually, there is another performance from Free Range that I should allude to in, in more detail, actually, because it's very relevant to um, everything I've just said. So there was a, there was um, an ensemble a few weeks ago. It was a collaboration between a, a, a poet and um, a band called The Drift. So the poet was called Nancy Gaffield, and she read out some amazing poetry um, all about various parts of the Kent landscape. And I'll just read what Sam wrote um, when he sent the mail out about that uh, performance. So it says, also planned this evening on Nancy Gaffield and The Drift, their new piece, Wielden, um, and of course that's about the Weald of Kent, the area of uh, West Kent, explores the consonance between nature, poetry, and electronic music. And that's just the sort of thing that um, I'm kind of edging towards uh, or reaching out towards when I'm thinking about sort of land-based culture. So actually, I hope to have those guys on the podcast at some point. Okay, so uh, I guess we'll just get on and um, have that conversation with Sam. So I'm here at the house of my friend Sam Bailey, or perhaps I should say Dr. Sam Bailey, because Sam's the only person I know who has a PhD in improvisation. Um, well, there's many more people than me. <laughs> okay, I thought you were even more unique than... Well, since I <laughs> there was a few people back in the noughties who had PhDs in improvisation, but in the last ten years, it's become a really popular field. Okay, of, uh, academic field. But when you did it, didn't you have trouble finding a supervisor because it was such an unusual thing to do? Yeah, there were yeah. there were a few PhDs in improvisation, but it was unusual back in two thousand seven, um, and it's just over the last ten fifteen years that. Uh, things have been growing and growing, and now there's like a big Oxford um, improvisers study guide kind of compendium handbook thing. Those kind of things didn't exist when I started. And when I uh, came to find an examiner, the problem was uh, with my examiner was it was a quite a famous classical piano player called John Tilbury, who'd worked with John Cage and Morton Feldman, Cornelius Cardew, wow. real expert in his field, but he didn't have a PhD. And it's the way of things that only people with PhDs can examine PhDs. Um, so clearly, if you're doing a PhD, which is in an unusual field, then they're going to have trouble incorporating it into the academy because it's all set up for the academy to... Basically... Yeah, doctors making doctors. Sort of. Yeah. yeah. So um, it took uh, almost a year for them to get their heads around how John Tilbury could be an examiner for me. Um, but he was. And I'm really glad he oh, was. Brilliant. And he came to a concert that I did, and the next morning we had the Viva, which is like the spoken examination. I was lucky to have passed with that corrections, which is good. Amazing. And, and did you did you did you uh, did you improvise as part of your Viva? Yeah, me yeah. and my friend yeah. Matt Wright. Wow. So he was um, processing the sound of the piano, and uh, in a kind of surround sound, with like for a quadraphonic surround sound, in the Virtual Box Cafe where Free Range started. So. It was the right thing. Um, it was good that Free Range was the end result of the PhD, if you know what I mean. Because in many ways it's like the legacy of all of that study. I got fed up with studying and writing and talking about improvisation and I wanted to, to do it and make it happen. It's funny, I've got a friend called John Letts and he, he was an archaeobotanist. He studied the origins of agriculture and very early farming practices. And... Um, and he was an academic for a while, but he he got fed up with that too and became a farmer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, farms ancient grains. So yeah. yeah. There's certain types of people and certain types of activity that the academy must find it hard to retain. And, you know, it takes a certain temperament to work in the institution, and I've discovered that that's not my bag. I'm very happy to work on the outskirts and the fringes, and I always have. You know, teaching piano or doing bits and pieces, but working full time there would not be good for me or for the institution. <laughs> So you continue to scratch your improvisation itch through through, um, through the free range series of events. Yeah, you're actually it's scratching. Your I'm foot, actually scratching. Say, yeah. It's quite <laughs> profound. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I it's not it's not just the improvisation. It's just basically creativity and um, uh, belonging. I think that's one of the things behind free range. I wanted for a long, long time. I was not very happy about living in Canterbury. I never intended to live in Canterbury. Um, and kind of end up staying here by accident, as many people do, stay in different wherever they get to. But I wanted to, um, uh, you know, create a group of people who were uh, creative, like-minded, mm. and that would 
uh, and I, uh, they all came out of the woodwork because we set up free range. There's a little group of us who met a few times to talk about setting up free range. And um, originally it was going to be the Sounds New Festival were going to do one event every month and then the poetry people were going to do one event every month and there was this bunch of film people who were going to do an event every month and I was going to do one event every month. But they, after a while that all kind of fell by the wayside and it was just pretty much me uh, with a big team of volunteers and, and then we became a charity and we have trustees and, and all sorts now. But, they, but they, how would you, how would you um, describe the, the range of mm -hmm. people that you have? Are you artists, you mean? Yeah, coming through. Well, people have asked about that. Um, uh, serendipity, I think, is the is a key programming policy. So, um, some of the things are, and and they really range from being quite accessible and quite family friendly, to being um, pretty out there and acerbic and difficult, and everything in between. And sometimes it dance with people with Down syndrome, sometimes it's um, comedy, kind of surreal comedy podcasts, sometimes it's really nasty full-on free improvisation or noise music, sometimes it's um, poetry, just spoken word, sometimes it's um, white witch rituals with naked women and paint, and sometimes it's audience participation, sometimes it's eating, using eating as a way of enhancing listening. Um, well, that's the event that where we kind of really got to know each other well. Um, all sorts. Eight years, oh, well over two hundred events, and mm. um, we've had all sorts. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in the in the well in the improvisation um, because um, you know on the on the on the podcast we're exploring a lot of issues around wildness and and, and uh, obviously with a strong affirmation of the idea of wildness. Uh, as being a kind of source of life and um, something we need to get back to. What do you think? Wildness and improvisation? Do you think they're...? <laughs> um, two nights ago I watched uh, Amazing Grace, which is the film of the gospel um, performance from that Aretha Franklin's album was made from. So in 1972, okay. uh, her record producers, Warner Brothers, wanted to make a live recording of her in, in a gospel setting. So they had this... Yeah, a church that she knew well, with a pastor who'd brought her up since she was 11, you know, kind of working with her, a community gospel choir that she knew really well, her dad was in the audience, and um, Sidney Pollock, the director, was uh, asked to film this thing, and it it went wrong, there were some technical issues with the film, so it never came on to telly, it never came on to film, but the album went on to become the best-selling gospel record of all time. So we uh, now it came out in cinemas last year, and I really want to go see it, but I, I missed it. And so we watched it on the computer mm. the other night. And it's amazing. And it's joyous and it's moving. And um, you see wildness there because um, you see people um, getting taken by the spirit and, um, and you see uh, Aretha Franklin just losing herself in song. And what's interesting when you can see the video, you see things like her dad coming up and mopping her brow and her face because there's sweat dripping off her while she's playing the piano. Um, things that you obviously not available to you on the record but you also see just how fragile and tired she is in between songs and although she's a young woman you know she's uh, not she's not like an old fragile person but uh, she just gives absolutely everything to those songs or rather they're taken out of her mm. and in between the songs she's like oh like limp and uh, uh, that's quite and she's a real pro so you know and there's one point at the end where she flops down and she's mopping her brow and she's she can she's just done giving it all. But then the choir start kind of singing uh, a kind of cool response. And it's like someone's lit literally kind of like a puppet has kind of picked her up. You know, she's possessed by the spirit again. She's got taken over. And, and I think um, that's one of the things which the evangelical African-American church has really given Western culture. It's a, a vicarious opportunity to lose oneself. Mm. And they've done that through music, through Jimi Hendrix, or through Prince, or through James Brown, and then on to all sorts of other white performers that have done the same kind of thing. You see these performers losing themselves in the moment of making music, and that is as close as we can get to the kind of possession rituals and ceremonies that um, ancient peoples have. You know what I mean? You go to a rock concert, Ed Sheeran's up there doing a bit of a cool response, and we all kind of um, the collective, the individuals are subsumed into the collective, you know? Mm. This is an ancient thing.
that people want to get back to. That's why music festivals are so important to people. But music festivals are not necessarily getting quite into that space that you're talking about there. In 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 at least many of the performances wouldn't wouldn't go that deep into that improvised. You know, we're going to vary from the theme here because the spirit moves us, sort of thing, and, well, and the, everybody moves together like in that gospel context. Yeah, it's because it, capitalism got in the way. Like the early music, the the one of the first, there's two big ones, wasn't there? Was, um, uh, I can't remember the big American one, but the one in the Isle of Wight. Was still the biggest rock festival ever, I think. It was called the Isle of Wight Festival. The Isle of Wight Festival, yeah. 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 Uh, you see videos of I've got this Miles Davis DVD, and you can see it on YouTube, called Electric Miles, and he's he played at about five o'clock in the afternoon, and um, just the sun was rising, uh, sorry, the sun was setting, and um, and you see these helicopter pictures of the Isle of Wight. <laughs> the Isle of Wight just filled up with people, and uh, I can't remember how many, maybe sixty thousand. So I think there was this these massed events which, like media, the kind of media infrastructure, and the technology infrastructure suddenly allowed like big PAs, big you know um, advertising, big names. Um, uh, they happened and they were enormous. And then suddenly people realised that they could make a buck out of this. Mm. And uh, and I I haven't been to Glastonbury, but my brothers go regularly, and they say that there's it's still got a lot of spirit. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's singing the same song because they know the music, and there is that kind of unity. But like, but it's a it's a gathering of diverse yeah, people yeah, from yeah, all over the yeah. all over the country and all over the world. You know, yeah. that's another powerful thing. I was speaking with um someone the other day. Who was I speaking to? I think I was speaking to um Sam Sitzma, who's a lay clerk at the cathedral. So that's a tradition of singing and gathering that's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and we were talking about free range. No, I was talking about it with Nadia, my wife, uh, in relation to the Aretha Franklin thing. So the concerts which I organise, free range, is a gathering every week. And there is something uh, quite powerful about just gathering each week with yeah. people, with yeah. a group of people. Your body in the same room with the same bodies that were there last week, or mostly. Yeah, and they're people that you, yeah. the funny thing about free range is they're people that often you wouldn't normally see in your everyday life because they come from different places. Sometimes you do. Uh, and there's, it's always a changing group of people, but there's always a few people that you recognise and know. And uh, there's just friendships that grow over time, little rivalries, enmities, people, um, new people, and you're sharing this music with them. And you're not only sharing music, but you're sharing kind of strange music that you wouldn't hear normally in your day-to-day -day lives. Um, and that has had power over the eight years or so, you know. And there's a ritual in, in the, involved. They always happen at the same time. There's normally an opening set. I normally try to try and get some money out of people through donations at the end. You know, and, and we even you use a little velvet. Collection. I mean, yeah. you even do that. It's really funny because you actually pass round somebody you obviously nicked from the cathedral. or There's a little collection pouch, yeah. <laughs> An artist said he made it for us, but I think he just nicked it from a church and stuck some badges on it. <laughs> it's uh, it's a little dangerous to overemphasize the um, those kind of slightly religious aspects of what it what we do because people, for some people, they're coming to escape that kind of thing. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So if you then start flagging it up, then you could ruin the thing which they like. So, uh, but it, but it, the keeping it open and ambiguous means that people can map their own meanings on it. And the people who come to Free Range are expert meaning makers, as we were talking about earlier. Uh, and people will get out of it what they want to get out of it. If you keep it open enough for them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you were saying earlier that people, you, you, you feel that the people that come are really good at listening. Yeah. And, that, and that's kind of what you mean when you say about the, the meaning makers. That but there's some, somehow there's an, there's, a, there's an engagement and a two-way flow there, like that that the artists that come, they feel like the audience has connected and therefore the performance or the, or the you know, you'd sort of stop thinking of it just as a performance, the sort of collaborative yeah. co-production of the evening between Absolutely. audience and, and, um, and, and an artist. Well, any communication is a collaboration yeah. to start with. Yeah. Secondly, then you've got musical communication, which is always a collaboration. And thirdly, uh, improvised musical um, communication, which is each one of those is even more relies even more on the collaborative other. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. if, if you're an improviser and the person's not improvising, and not so if you're an improviser and the person's not listening, then, then then you can't really create anything worthwhile. At least if you've got some pre-prepared stuff and they're not listening, you can still play your songs or you still play your pieces. 
you see what I mean? Well, With an improviser, unless the listening's there, there's there's nothing. There's, that's that's what is the generative source of what's happening. It's well, got to have the listening. So you're you're sort of are you kind of making a bit playing a musical description of them then or are you are you sort of musically dancing with them by improvising and, and feeding off the the sort of attention of well if someone's listening to you then you um feel then you can speak to them right if they're not listening to you your thoughts and your ideas and your words and your feelings won't flow and come to mm. surface do you know mm. what i mean yeah yeah it's just as simple as that i mean uh, and the more open and generous and curious and attentive and discriminating your listening yeah. Then, uh, then the better you've got some, you know, and you can sense this in all sorts of subtle ways. Like at free range, um, I interviewed Kristen about free range, and she's a theatre practitioner, and she said something which I didn't really um, clock at the, uh, at the events is that it's set up so that the audience can see each other, like they're on sofas and chairs or sitting on the yeah. floor and stuff. Yeah. So the audience sees each other, and then and they see other people listening, and she says theatrically that is actually quite powerful. Because you're not just looking at the artist, you're looking at yeah. people looking at the artist, and so this kind of feedback loop. And she said that she's not used to going to those kind of music events, and she said her phrase was, it sounds like there's a lot of professional ears in the room. And um, she says in, when she's doing like theatre shows, puppetry shows or movement shows, and there are professional people in the room, she said that's quite a hard audience normally, because you've got critical... It's peers. kind of analytical. You've got analytical eyes on you. Yeah, but at free range, the remarkable thing is you've got that kind of. Um, well, this is what she, in what she said. You have this uh, all these professional ears in the room, and she said for her it makes her upper game. She says she feels like she there's there must be something there to pay attention to if all these people are like in rapt concentration. So she does her best to pay attention and pay attention. Paying attention in this context means making meaning. It means being collaborative partner in the object of drawing meaning out of this ambiguous stuff, like modern poetry or improvised music. You know, if it was an Ed Sheeran song, they're beautiful songs, but they don't leave that much room for ambiguity. You're kind of told what to think and feel through the song, mm. and there's a mm. power in that. But mm. if you leave things open, it invites people to step in and make meaning. It's quite hard to describe without making it feel like improvisers are not doing anything. But they are. They're making patterns and they're making... They're working with this language, which very deliberately leaves a lot open. And unless you've got someone listening who can kind of understand that and fill in the gaps and make meaning out of it, it ends up being meaningless. I mean, it makes me think of, like, sacred texts and so on. I'm, I'm spending a lot of time at the moment wading through various books in the Bible, especially, like, the prophetic books. And, and um, I mean, you just know there's not, like, the definitive correct reading of that text, you know. You, yeah. you look at it and you think, well, it's... It's just like every, you know, almost every second word is like a, a, a you could disappear down that word in in search of meaning and come up with all kinds of things, and you start linking it with the other imagery in the in the same passage. Yeah, those things that are pregnant with meaning mm. and that are like sponges that can soak up all sorts of different meanings. They normally come from um, the unconscious. Yeah, they very rarely do people set out to create all of that stuff. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They'll come oh, from no. serendipitous moments, chance happenings, or you know, uh, or people being right in the moment. I'm I'm thinking of like people making films as well. There's yeah. a great deal of thought, forethought and planning and structure with a film. But the real um power of a film will come in the performances, the acting performances, and in the script and um, possibly often I think like uh, on the hoof dis- uh, directorial decisions, you know, made in response to Lighting, or do you know what I mean? I think serendipity plays a massive role. Serendipity and the unconscious are responsible for some of the richest sources of meaning in our culture. I think. Yeah, it's um, it's a craft, though, isn't it? To to be able to access the unconscious, because it certainly isn't. You know, it's it's not it's not like you know logging onto your computer and opening a software package or something like that. Mm. There is something very sort of visceral and and and. Um, well, wild, you know, like to, to to know how to get to that place, and I'm sure no one can reliably guaranteed get to that place. But like, if you improvise or you or you or you write from from that kind of space, or you create art or whatever, mm. you know, your craft isn't really the pen to paper bit or even the fingers to notes bit. It's it's the where your insides are, are able to kind of 
get through to a space where you're moved, basically. Yeah, yeah. And where that movement comes out as you're moving your hand to play the piano, as you do. Or, or, or for me, it's almost like grabbing words out of the air when, I, when, I'm, when I'm writing in a, in a less conscious way. I'm just slightly stream of consciousness to develop ideas. Um, but that's a craft, you know, to, to, uh, to move in that kind of world, I think. It's something you, you can develop over time. Mm. So I think of it as like holding of ambiguity, like right. tolerating ambiguity. It's quite hard to do sometimes, especially if it's something where there's a deadline or something like that, you know. Uh, or there's an audience, you know, you've got to tolerate ambiguity. And then what happens is you create this um, space. And I remember this, um, uh, someone talking to me about it being like a clearing. You create a clearing and something will grow in a clearing. But it requires a certain discipline. Uh, and is it normally involves a certain amount of risk to not fill that clearing with shit, you know, just stuff. You leave it open, uh, often till the very last minute, you know, uh, uh, in the hope, in the in, in its faith. Again, I suppose this is a, where a religious kind of strand comes into creative activity. It's faith that that someone will come. Well, there's a great. I don't know if it's a definition of faith, but I, I believe the passage is certainly in that kind of territory. It says, while we look not on the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. That's a, that's a um, passage from St. Paul. Right, okay. The idea that you can deliberately look, take your eyes away from what's actually in front of you and, and look into this unseen realm. Yeah. And, and I suppose as a consequence that you're, um, you're bringing something back with you. you know? You're looking into that realm and, and pulling it into the seen realm. I think that would be a good definition of art as well probably I guess so yeah I think with free improvisation um, so there's uh, everything it's got a context and history free improvisation comes off the back of free jazz which has clearly got two very powerful things you've got the kind of African-American evangelical church friar in free jazz there's even a church of John Coltrane where there's a big picture of John Coltrane with fire coming out of his saxophone in America, in California somewhere. And, um, and then there's also the um, righteous political anger to do with the Black Power movement. So those are two things behind free jazz. But free improvisation, which was the, the kind of right, European... Just, the, the, the black gospel thing clearly goes back to Africa, though, right? Which is, Absolutely. Which is, so if you, if you explore that thread a bit further back, you're looking at basically tribal... Tribal music with with a, with a strong element of improvisation. Well, that's where you get this kind of um, possession cult type energy. I think you know you get some free jazz musicians, um, late John Coltrane or um, uh, Albert Ayler in his album Spiritual Unity. It's kind of almost childlike in some way, but it's kind of really wild. It is really wild. Um, but the thing with the European improvisers, they were coming from a kind of Marxist political perspective, right. which is subtly different from the Black Power okay. movement. Um, uh, and there wasn't the same. Uh, there was the same sense of wildness, but it came from a different place. So Peter Brotsman did this album called Machine Gun, which is him playing tenor saxophone and just the most angry and aggressive and intense kind of scream, you know. Um, so it's protest then. Protest, in a sense, yeah. And so um, Evan Parker, who's like one of the leading lights in um, the European free improvised world, has been playing since the 60s, he was really wanted to be a, a botanist. And he'd studied botany as an undergraduate level, I think. And he went over to uh, America, I think for a holiday, or like some kind of field trip or something. And he heard the Cecil Taylor trio. And Cecil Taylor's a piano player. And, um, and that would have been some really wild stuff, hearing Cecil Taylor in the 60s in New York. And that totally changed Evan's mind, and he came back and decided to pick up where John Coltrane left off. And he now, uh, by incorporating all sorts of world musics that he listened to, um, in particular kind of shamanic traditions, and he would, he's got this solo saxophone, soprano saxophone um, style, where he's continually playing these great big long circular breaths, his pieces were gone with one continuous breath that lasts like 10 or 15 minutes. And he'll play these massive, great big um, sheets of notes, and he's developed this incredible skill of being able to uh, like change some of the notes that are moving up the top. So it feels like the top is moving at a different rate to the middle, that's moving at a different rate to the bottom. Uh, and there'll be different timbres and they're moving at different rates. It's amazing. It's like total 
trance music mm. in it as well. So I think free improvisation has got elements of wildness and elements of shamanic traditions and elements of protest music and elements of the kind of European avant-garde in it. Um, anyway, I'm just throwing that out there as kind of related kind of like to wildness. It's ecstatic as well. Do you think there's, a, there's an element of it. I remember playing, um, I, I played at the Vortex Jazz Club in London one time and I was doing an opening set and then, um, then Evan Parker's trio, um, which is three of the best musicians in this field. Zevon Park himself playing saxophone, John Edwards playing double bass, and a guy called John Russell playing guitar. And Evan Parker and John Russell are in their 70s, so they're, they're, they're not spring chickens. And they're sitting around before the gig saying, um, oh, John Russell was saying, oh, something about his, it might be his children are trying to sort of put him in a home, or, you know, this <laughs> talking about things that wow. would concern 70-year-old people. Okay, so I was thinking, Right, okay, these are quite old people. And then uh, they invited me to play the last tune with them in their set. And um, they set off with such ferocity and wildness and energy that I was almost knocked sideways. And I just had to, I was out of breath by the end of the piece because I just had to just go fucking mental. Like, it was proper wildness when you're talking about <laughs> these old guys. They had developed like the muscle or the craft that you're talking yeah. about. To, to really push themselves and it's only when they're right on the edge of all of this kind of crazy manic virtuosic stuff uh, and that's where unexpected stuff will happen partly through accident serendipity just through sheer energy you know that was an amazing experience and that's that's wild sounds it <laughs> evan parker's had this residency at the vortex on a wednesday once a month or something for for 40 years or something stupid like really a long long time and that's ongoing it's ongoing yeah wow. yeah you mentioned you might play some pieces i'm not sure what you had in mind but um uh, well uh, it just so happens that like, yesterday yeah um i had this piano tuned to just intonation do you know what just intonation no. is no the normal way of tuning a piano is through what they call equal temperament and um so if you take the interval of a fifth you know like ba -bum, you hear this? Um, that's not a very good example. And then you tune the next uh, next fifth up, and then you tune the next fifth up, and you tune the next fifth up, and so on. Eventually, you'll get back round to your starting note. Yeah. yeah. And in theory, they should all be perfectly well in tune, you know? It's a ratio, you take a string, and you divide it into three equal bits, and that's the fifth. Yeah. That's the maths of it. A three to one ratio. Um, however, in real life, if you do that, when you go back to the original note, it's uh, it's really sharp. Basically, it's not the original note, so it doesn't work. Mathematically, it doesn't work. And um, people, Pythagoras knew this, I think, and but people weren't really bothered about this. They just tuned it so it sounded nice. They would tune their instruments or their organs or their guitars or their violins. Um, uh, uh, but then, but what that meant is you could only play in a few keys and it would sound nice. If you went to some other keys, it would start to sound a bit weird. So in the late uh, 1600s, Bach invented the system of tuning called well-tempered, which is a precursor to equal-tempered, which allowed you to play in all the keys. And this was a big deal for him, so he's showing off. He wrote a prelude and fugue in C major, prelude and fugue in C minor, prelude and fugue in C sharp major, prelude and C sharp minor. He went around all the keys, and he did it twice over, so there's 48 of these. Um, and that was the well-tempered clavier. And since 1680, or whenever that came out, um, equal temperament has been increasingly the norm. And not only equal temperament, but there's been like fixed pitches now. So um, uh, in between the two world wars, they fixed A, which is this note here, at 440 hertz, which means it vibrates, you know, 440 ups and downs per second. <coughs> Prior to that, it was different in different places, in different towns and countries. Why? And you get Baroque organs made from years and hundreds of years ago, and they'll have a different A, you know. There was no need for people to have the same A. And what's totally bizarre, I heard this podcast the other day, where it was in some subclause in the Treaty of Versailles, signed after the Second World War, where they agreed to have A. <laughs> it's actually, they agreed to have A at the French pitch, which was like 435 or something like that. And it was only through subsequent negotiations that it changed to 440. But... Um, so those two things... It's obviously seen as a serious bone of contention to be put in a peace treaty. That is totally <laughs> bizarre. Over this. Yeah, I, I couldn't <laughs> really believe war. it. <laughs> <laughs> I part, must have been part of the um, 
the, the sense of Europe being a union, and mm. so therefore we're going to share orchestras and you know there don't was tell the Brexit lot. We want to go back to British pitch. <laughs> control our own borders. Control our own aid. <laughs> so um, so I, when when you came around this morning, I, I hadn't didn't get the piano tuned like this deliberately for you. Because uh, when you came around this morning, I thought I'm thinking, okay, well, um, the, uh, equal temperament and fixing A at four forty are two things which reduce the wildness and the chaos and the, ah. the inchoate nature of pitch. Pitch is not something which is can be contained very uh, yeah. in, in a kind of mathematically pure way. However, like the ubiquitous interface through which we in, interact with music in our culture is the piano keyboard. Like you see, it, you've got synthesizers like this. You go on Logic Pro, or you've got a little keyboard there on the screen, um, and it's always equal tempered. And it's like this post enlightenment um, mentality whereby they thought. Um, what's what's wild? Okay, that's wild. Pitch is wild. Okay, I'm going to divide it into twelve equal little boxes and uh, make it fit. And the way they make it fit is by making everything equally out of tune. So equal tempered um, instruments are all out of tune slightly. Nothing's totally in tune. And so you, it's a compromise, like everything in when Europeans have attempted to impose order on wildness. Mm. Mm. It's a compromise. Mm. Um, and uh, just intonation is a form of tuning where you pick just one scale and you tune that one scale absolutely perfectly. But it means some of the other scales sound awful. And I'll show you what I mean. So okay. C major, let's tune C major. So you play a C major chord on that piano? That one, yeah. If you listen to it, it's it's much purer, and because it's purer, the, the tone actually sustains for longer. Have a listen. Goes like a second wind, doesn't it? Like a which just keeps going because I think the um, the waveforms don't cancel each other out. It just sort of it sounds lame, doesn't it? It just sort of flops down after. That's got a yeah, it's it's a little bit beating. Anyway, so you, that, um, if so I take your notes, that your notes are resonating more with each other. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, wow. they won't be cancelling each other out. I don't think so much. And if it's like stiller, yeah, that's how I feel it. Anyway, if I go up a semitone. So this is the compromise. Just intonation. Very nice and C. You go up a semitone. Well, that last one was the last one. A flat's okay. But this one, F sharp. G flat. Wow. So you've got your F major chord. to be able to go through all the keys here but um, but yeah what is interesting is in, in uh, the majority of folk cultures and in healing music traditions they will use just intonation not necessarily thinking of it as just intonation but they'll just choose one key really purely and they'll stay there yeah because a lot most instruments or a lot of instruments in the world really only have one you know one key or one chord or something like that they don't have all it's not designed like this, you know. It's funny because when you get out of the one key, it sounds pretty wonky, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> e major sounds awful, doesn't it? 
incredible. Just with the same so one tuning. You, what are you going to do with it? I mean, what, what's your... Oh, I had it tuned like this because I just want to improvise with it. As I want to be able to improvise with proper... Like, as a guitarist, I should point out the guitarists and string players, everyone who's got control over their own tuning, when they're not playing with an equal-tempered instrument, and they've got really good, and they've got good ears. Will tend to play to just intonation or adapt to whatever sounds best. Right. So guitarists will often like. I, I, was, I was teaching a, a guitarist yesterday who's a music therapist as well, and he was talking about when he tunes the piano. Sometimes it doesn't sound quite right to him, and he has to make little adjustments to his tuning once he's tuned the piano. And that would be his ear trying to telling him what just sounds best and getting rid of some of the uh, intonation imperfections and in an equal temperament. So this isn't, you know, equal temperament is something which afflicts keyboards, really. Mm. But if you're um, listening to electronic dance music that's been made on sequences and synthesizers, you generally listen to equal-tempered systems. Yeah. Um, yeah anyway, I, so as a pianist, you don't often get a chance to play something that is actually in tune. And I just really wanted to do that. And sitting there... I mean, if I played this chord at you for five minutes... Than if I played this chord at you for five minutes. Well, it is it is C. It's a C major chord. Yeah. But this one's got this sharpened. Yeah. Third. It's funny. I mean, it, it, it immediately makes me think of Terry Riley's in C. Yeah. Which my older boy Ezra used to really hate him in spite of the fact he's a musician so I used to put it on at full volume in order to get him out of bed in the morning at certain points when he was a teenager so he certainly didn't find, find it calming but I wonder if Terry was using a, a piano at any point with this tuning because it would have made a huge difference well uh, Charlemagne Palestine who was contemporary with Terry Riley did he had a Blutner piano I think it was a Blutner there was a particular maker piano that he really liked the way it spoke yeah. And and he would he did this series. What's the piece? I've got it up there. An amazing piece. And um, this particular piece. Uh, oh God, I shouldn't be able to remember what it is now. Um, While you're looking for, I should just say for anybody listening that doesn't know what Terry Riley's in C is. It's I think it's about twelve minutes, isn't it? Of just constantly. Now, I'll say. Does it go on that long? Uh, it depends. It's like it's um, it's fifty little fragments that can be gone to at any speed you like. But it is just it is just the note C or possibly the chord C. <laughs> no, yeah. there no. I mean, there is a. This is going on the top. There's 50 of those little blum, blum, 50 of those little patterns, but the whole way through there's bum, 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 the whole way through. Um, anyway, the Charlemagne Palestine piece, he's playing these um, very quick um, uh, tremolos, which are like two chords alternating with the pedal down, and uh, the whole point of it is that after a while you start hearing sounds that he's not playing, that are the result of the way the sound waves are interacting. Right. And it particularly uh, happens on this particular maker piano. Right. Um, there's which also has got this tuning, tuning. I don't know if he changes the tuning. Oh. That would be interesting to look into. There's Lamont Young, another contemporary of Terry Riley, who who's did a piece called the Well Tuned Piano, which is a bit of a riff on the Well Tempered Clavier, and he tunes the piano to some extraordinary weird sounding temperament, and improvises on it. And there are like eight albums of this, or eight records of this. It's beautiful. It's like kind of um, slightly. Skewed new age meditation music, but with um, very peculiar sounds. You know, I really like it. <laughs> so, uh, but, but generally speaking, people don't mess with the piano. Um, normally, because in concerts, you uh, know, in, in venues, if they're lucky enough to have a piano, you want it to be adaptable and versatile. You know. Um, so uh, we don't know. I mean, the piano tuner who came and did it with me. He hasn't. He hasn't done it before on a uh, on a on a grand. We don't know if it's going to damage the tuning pegs or whatever. You know, it's an experiment, really. <laughs> you obviously really want to <laughs> yeah. explore this, putting your um, piano on the line. Well, I want to regain like the the the, the purity, the healing powers of actually put, of music being in tune. Mm. Now, I have a little Indian harmonium uh, that uh, that has got that divides the octave into twenty-two shrutis, so that's a similar thing. 
uh, where there's a little metal rod you can pull out and it will change the note from being slightly sharper to slightly flatter. Uh, but uh, but, but uh, piano is really my instrument so I wanted to hear it on this. Yeah, not quite so straightforward to adjust the tuning. No, no. Yeah, anyway, so uh, it, the, the tenuous link to this is wildness. Mm. There's a wildness to the um, to this chord here that you don't get on the other piano. And you get a genuine contrast between purity and impurity, which has been filtered out by the equal tempo system, you know. Solo improvising, I should say, is a bit different from group improvising, mm. because you don't have the other person to be the generative source of the music, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you end up having to, you know, come up with a lot of the materials, which means it's, it's quite a different thing. No better or worse, but it's a different thing. Maybe it's less wild. I don't know. There's certainly less. If you've got another person, especially if you don't know that person, there is a, a genuine kind of unpredictability about that. I mean, you don't think that there's there's a factor of there's less inhibition when there's nobody else there. Because I, I mean, I think there's 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 some things I've done, just mucking around with my voice and, and even the guitar, uh, uh, that I'm not sure if I'd have dared take the risk, you know, if it had been other people present. Because I, 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 you know, I feel a little sort of hunch that I could exaggerate what I'm doing with my voice, and it ends up sounding really pretty weird, and and maybe even frightening, you know, um, sort of roaring or or, um, or percussive sort of sounds from my voice and, and sort of being slightly abusive to my guitars, mm -hmm. <laughs> just really battering the strings or, or doing things which, um, you know, maybe it's because I don't hang around in the right circles, Sam, but like, <laughs> I'm not sure that I would, I would have allowed that to come out, you know, if, right. if, if, if there were other people in the room sometimes. And then, and then having done that sort of thing, I think well, I can, I can maybe be a bit in that vein, playing around other people, having having given it a try, like in, yeah, in yeah. that sort of solo, solitary um, context. Well, uh, one of my favourite musicians of all time is a guy called Richard Dawson, mm. who does incorporate moments of wildness and being out of control into his performances, into his recordings. There's a song called Nothing Important, and each chorus gets successively more unhinged. <laughs> so we've gone from wildness to madness now. So. Yeah. <laughs> They're not far, not far apart from each other. And uh, his performances, like I spoke to a friend of his called Rodri Davis, uh, the harp player, who performs with Richard sometimes. And um, I've never met Richard himself. And um, he says that he absolutely gives it 100% and he's completely exhausted when he's finished. And I've seen Richard Dawson perform a few times and he does. He's like... One of those performers who's just giving absolutely everything at that one moment is really compelling live. And uh, yeah, there's a wildness as risk, I think. But you were talking about improvising solo. Yeah, I, have, I tend to play with my eyes closed a lot of the time, mm. which can sometimes be a bit annoying for people who are conducting or trying to uh, you know, get my attention for things. But when you're improvising, it's, it's more... That's a really weird thing, actually, because um, I used to be terribly worried when I would play with free improvisers that I wouldn't be listening to them in great detail. Because often I'd close my eyes and I would be very attentive, but I wouldn't necessarily be listening to them in great detail. I'd be, like, um, kind of putting my feelers out for the energy in the room, if you know what I mean. And um, feeling if... the way This is when I'm playing as a group, as a free improvised group, and... This has been corroborated by my friend David Lee, who did a, he's done a PhD on improvisation and movement. And I played in a couple of his PhD things that he analysed. And we, we end up discussing this. And so what I would be listening for is if there was um, the energy had a lack somewhere or could do with something. And very often I just went, in these group contexts, I found myself not playing, sometimes even just leaving the room or hiding under the piano or getting myself out of the situation if it felt like there was the energy was fine but as soon as it started to feel maybe a little tentative or a bit like flagging um i could come along and and, and make a like it comes dr Bailey to uh, well sometimes all you got to do you know if someone's make it good again. if someone's tipping toe and round and they're, they're not feeling like you feel like they've lost confidence or something yeah you come down and um, <laughs> 
that for about two or three minutes, and then and then when you stop, the, everything's changed. <laughs> and then you don't have to do anything for the next few minutes. That sounds like old school surgery from from Dr. <laughs> it's just sore a limb off. That will get people's focused attention. Oh my goodness. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes it just needs like a kick up the backside. Do you know what I mean? But it doesn't need anything else, and then you can stop. So um, I think I wouldn't probably do that if I was playing solo. Uh, but it feels sometimes a group improvisation. You can feel the improvisation calling for a moment of that, of energy or wildness, or sometimes quietness or comedy or whatever, you know? That's amazing. I was just trying to calm down. The <laughs> 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 shock of you doing that. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I haven't probably answered your question, but uh, we've talked about some of the issues related to it anyway. Yeah. Do you want me to play something? I think it'd be amazing to, to sort of end the uh, conversation with uh, without words, yeah. Okay. Well, improvisation, in my opinion, is normally, um, it's like a process of discovery. Mm. So if you know everything in advance, then there's not really much to discover. The most interesting improvisations are when people are not really quite sure what's going on, or who they're playing with, or how the instrument works, or what the song is, or whatever. Sometimes you get really great improvisations in that case. When people are absolutely on top of it, and are not pushing themselves to the edge, then it's not often not very interesting. Well, sorry, I, I hope this doesn't knock you off what, what you were saying, but it just makes me think um, of the great Van Morrison album, Master of Weeks, because apparently, <coughs> apparently what happened in the studio is, is, is he just looked at the floor and sang his songs and gave the, uh, the, the session musicians who hadn't previously heard his stuff, like, like a, he didn't give any instructions at all. <laughs> it must have, I'm just wondering if that created the kind of situation that you're talking about, because it, it, it is an extraordinary... Uh... Well, I think you need craftsmanship on your side, and it's funny because yeah. I've heard that whole Astral Week story from the other side, so ah. from Richard Davis, the double bass player in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and the free improviser and the jazz musician who played a lot of Blue Note records, and he talks about turning up for that session and having to end up being the MD because no one told anyone what to do. Yeah, yeah. And Van yeah. Morrison, I think he was in a separate booth or something. Oh, like that. right. So certainly he wasn't <laughs> engaging or interacting with the... No. No. Um, but luckily the music is simple enough. It was just pretty much one chord jams, but these session musicians kind of uh, end up directing themselves, and uh, they have this immense craftsmanship of being jazz musicians and classical musicians already, Yeah. and therefore could do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think if it was um, less experienced musicians, I don't think that would have worked. But you get well. the sense that something amazing has come out of it, and, and I was wondering whether that sort of tension of not of not being given any guidance or instructions at all. Yeah, I mean, Miles Davis used to do this. There's a <coughs> it sounds a bit pretentious, but there's an essay called "The Semiotic Environment of Miles Davis's Bands" or something like that. <laughs> and um, a semiotic environment, as far as I can understand, semiotics means signs. So he would. And all bands have certain little signs that they, there's normally a power relations in a, any group of people, in a music in, in particular. And a little nod or a note or, or a little hand gesture can mean quite a lot in those charged environments, you know. Especially if bands have been together for many years. You were telling me about a band that you were in at one point and uh, <laughs> semiotic environments can get clogged up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's yeah. this... Uh, Miles would do things uh, deliberately to keep people on their toes. Um, I mean, the, the one in, quoted in this essay is um, to Marcus Miller, the young Marcus Miller, he was only like 19, 20 at the time, he's an amazing fretless bass player, and he was playing this song called Ada, which I think is on an album called The Man With The Horn, and um, it's just like a two chord thing, it's boom, 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 and, and Marcus Miller was playing this riff, and Miles Davis, uh, says to him, hey man, <laughs> I thought you was bad, you ain't playing shit. Something along those lines. He had, uh, and then Marcus Miller's like, oh shit, okay, I better show what, show him what I can do. And he's like doing all this kind of and all the crazy kind of virtual six flat bass stuff. And then Miles stops the band again and says, hey motherfucker, shut up and play F and G. And then Marcus Miller goes back to him like, what the fuck am I supposed to do now? And my reading of that, and you can hear it on the recording, is that there's this sense of um, uh, there's a sense of alertness that that creates, uncertainty, 
um, but alertness. Uh, and as you get him uh, on the recording, he's going boom, 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 boom. So it's a kind of um, uh, restraint and alertness that you wouldn't have got from the so 19 year old bass player. Right. So by that, that by he. So by you can see he's basically playing the same thing, but it's got a it's got a totally different edge to it. Slightly different edge to it, yeah, yeah because yeah. Miles was able to understand the be able to manipulate the situation partly through power politics in subtle ways to create a, a way of playing that wouldn't be normally be available to a highly virtuosic 19-year-old bass player. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So yeah, I was thinking about which piano I was going to play, equal tempo one or this yeah. one. I'm going to play this one um, because I, have, I haven't really played in it much and I don't, not, we're not really sure what it can do. Um, sometimes he uses little ebos on the piano and I'm going to do that now. Right, so you put things on top of the strings inside the piano. Yeah. And what does that do? Um, changes the sound of the piano. Now you're putting a comb in the middle of your piano. Can I lift it up? So I'm going to improvise now. And it, uh, just, it's really the sound of me kind of finding out what this, in, what this strange tuning is, what I've done to my poor piano. That sound has just come from the fact that you've got something sitting on top of the strings and... It's designed for guitars. So that, that's an electronic thing? It's called the Evo. It's yeah. just shaking, is it? Is it just vibrating or...? I think it's like an electromagnet. Okay. You can pick it up if you want. You know when you wrap a bit of copper wire around a battery? Yeah.
Thank you for joining us for this week's Worldwide Podcast. And um, just a word of encouragement to you, wherever you are in the world, that you have wild plants living near you. You have a wild landscape that is producing food that is available for you. And I just encourage you to maybe learn one species from your surroundings that you can eat and, and make that part of your daily life. And the course I mentioned last week, which which uh, was, was on the podcast notes for the uh, Cesar Costa podcast, we tried to do something there which shows plants that are available all around the world. So I think it, it's quite fun to to think about wherever you are in the world that, that you're likely to have one of these plants. Um, and um, I could just mention a few because they're, they're the sort of things that you could you could get out and look for and uh, maybe choose one of these to be the one plant that you begin to introduce to your diet if you're right at the beginning of your wild food journey. So I'm going to mention one. It's called plantain. And there are several species. In, in the UK, we have two main ones, greater plantain and uh, ribwort plantain. It shares a name with the thing that looks like a banana, but that's really not at all what I'm talking about. They're, they're actually leaves which are very distinctive by having parallel lines running from the top to the bottom. Now, most leaves have one line that runs right up the middle of the leaf and then like branches pointing out from the middle to the side, the veins of the leaf. But the veins of plantain are parallel um, and they're typically found growing in grassy areas. So that's quite handy because there's there's um, certainly in England, I can't guarantee this for anywhere else, but here we, we don't have anything else that grows in grass that has those kind of parallel veins. It makes plantain really easy to distinguish. And they have a slight mushroomy taste um, and that's because they have microscopic fungi within the cells. They're also a great healing plant. They'll staunch bleeding if you've cut yourself and they'll uh, keep the wound free of infection and speed up the healing process. So that's a, that's a great thing about plantain. But they're great just chopped because um, they're quite fibrous. You, you probably need to chop them and put them through a salad um, and just get that <clears throat> fiber performing uh, a role of, of giving a crunch to the salad rather than making it too chewy, which is what would happen if you left the leaves whole. And plantain also um, is well known in, an, in another form. Um, other than the leaves, it produces a, a seed um, with, with a husk. And that husk is known as psyllium husk and is sold in health food shops all around the world. And it's produced in various different countries, but it is basically plantain seed. So anywhere where you are, there's plantain, you can harvest the seeds um, in the late summer and have your own psyllium husk. So it'll, it'll be fun to know. Um, we are just working at the moment on a on a podcast website, so there'll shortly be a um, an email that you can contact us from. So it'd be, it'd be great for you to, um, you know, in future weeks, you can perhaps get in touch and let us know about your wild food discoveries, especially if you've taken the lead from uh, the suggestions that I've made in this slot here. Another thing that I'm going to say more about in future weeks, we're going to relaunch the Wild Box, which was a project we were working on up until April of last year. And we've had some sort of time out to think about it and think about how we could do it differently because, um, well, we just we just had a lot of other things we needed to work on at the time and we'd run the Wild Box for a year. Um, but we're planning to relaunch that soon. So the Wild Box is basically... For people in the UK, um, we send out several plants every week and lots of recipe suggestions and support to enable you to get to know all the edible wild plants. But more of that another week. But I just wanted to uh, drop it in there for now um, just to just to whet your appetite for something that will be coming up soon. Okay, well, thank you for listening to this week's Wild Wild Podcast. Mm-hmm.